be mine. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity May. It's a podcast where we help you learn to invest in roughly 20 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Coming off an absolute high from our party last weekend. What a ripper. What a ripper of a party. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was good. It was uh, good to meet some listeners. Thanks to everyone that came. Yeah, big time. We had uh, we had some down from Brisbane made made the trek all the way. Apologies, I've forgotten their name. There was a we, there was we had uh, one one listener from Perth. Perth, yeah, Spanish Milo from Spain. Yeah, someone they from Colombia. All over but, the world. But I actually Columbia. don't think they flew in from Spain and Colombia. Hey, 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 no, <laughs> I actually think the listener from Perth also had lived in Sydney for a while. But still, you know. Yeah. And then I, I was up from Melbourne, and actually yeah, a couple right. of my mates were up from Melbourne. So, yeah, I was really in from the east. So every every corner of Australia and some global listeners as well. Absolutely. So apologies to those down in Melbourne and Canberra and Brisbane and everywhere else that reached out and said they would like us to be doing a, a party up there. We do have a, a an Australian party tour on the back burner, don't we, Ren? <laughs> we do. Look, honestly, every time we do an event like this, same when we did the live shows last year, it just makes me think, you know, we've got a, we've got some really interesting listeners out there who are really engaged in the podcast and, you know, what if we, what if we just gave Equity Mates a red hot crack? But anyway, yeah. thoughts, yeah. thoughts for another time. Later. Yeah. No, it was good and a massive thanks to everyone that came and as we said on the night, uh, it was a celebration of um, hitting the ton, 100 plus episodes and you know, a celebration of all the equity mates that have joined uh, the journey along the way. So it was more of a celebration about them more than anything, because as you said in your speech, Ren, we, we literally couldn't be doing this if it weren't for everyone on the other side of uh, the headphones. So yeah. a massive thanks. To well, we, we could be, but we probably wouldn't be at this yeah, point, right. two and yeah. a bit years yeah. in. <laughs> anyway, <Stupid>. um, <laughs> anyway, from one celebration of investing to another (laughs) (laughs) not sure about that yeah that was that was a segue that was a good segue yeah from one one investing celebration to another there was another big party on this weekend well for some a party for some a business trip if not the world's biggest, really, yeah. in this in well, this space. Well, r- r- now it is, but soon enough, equity mates may be uh, taking the mantle. True, true. Woodstock for capitalists, or at least <laughs> the Northern Hemisphere's Woodstock for capitalists, will take the Southern Hemisphere's mantle. The Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting was uh, over the weekend as well. Mm, how, how good. So this is where once a year Warren, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger uh, the two two CEOs or wh- whatever they are, the chief investing officers or heads of Berkshire Hathaway come together and open up a full stadium. It is now around tens of thousands of people come each year to uh, a weekend of listening to Charles and Warren update on all things Berkshire Hathaway and their views on the market and gives the uh, listeners and, uh, well, sorry, gives the investors, I guess, a, a huge opportunity to ask a whole bunch of questions. But you've, Which uh, is you've, why we're here today. You've tipped your hand there because uh, it does give our listeners an opportunity. 
So what happens generally is Warren and Charlie will sit on a stage and answer questions for, uh, this year it was about seven and a half hours. Gee. So, you know, for I think Charlie's close to 90 and Warren's in his 80s. So to have that kind of stamina is, you know, full credit. We, we do 20-minute podcasts and we're exhausted. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, part of this podcast is we'll do some of the work so you guys don't have to. And in that spirit, I am listening to the full seven and a half hours of Q&A. And what we've done in this episode, and we're going to pull it over to the next one as well, is um, we've pulled out some of our favorite questions and answers from Warren and Charlie. Uh, to give you guys a taste of the biggest investing celebration of the year. Yeah, epic. So don't worry about trying to find the, the stream for this. As Ren's, as you said, doing the hard yards, seven hours, slogging it out. Well, it's not, probably not a slog. It's probably quite enjoyable, no, it's been, to be honest. It's, been good. But, um, it's, always, it's always very inspirational. So well, let's let's get stuck in. Yeah, so this, this episode's a little bit longer than our normal 20 minutes. We'll try and keep it under an hour. Most of it's going to be Warren and Charlie, so don't worry. You're not going to have to listen to us for that long. But in this first one, uh, we've pulled out topics, everything from Warren and Charlie's thoughts on some of their big investments, and then recent things like Amazon, their thoughts on uh, you know market change and change in the economy, and then we top it off with everyone's favorite topic, Bitcoin. So if you've ever wondered what Warren Yo. and Charlie think about Bitcoin... Uh, We've saved the best to last for you. So, right. so to kick it off, one big topic in the market these days is share buybacks. So one of the first questions of the day was asking Warren and Charlie their thoughts on buybacks uh, and when they'll buy back Berkshire's shares. My question concerns your repurchase of Berkshire shares. In the third quarter of last year, you spent almost $1 billion buying Berkshire B stock at an average price of $207. But then you got to a period between, 19, between December 26th and April 11th when the stock languished for almost four months under 207 and yet you purchased what I think of as a very limited amount of stock. Even as you were sitting on an enormous pile of 112 billion, my question is why you did not repurchase a lot more stock, unless, of course, there was for a time an acquisition of, say, 80 billion to 90 billion on your radar. Yeah, the question uh, whether we had 100 billion or 200 billion uh, would not make a difference, or 50 billion would not make a difference in our uh, uh, approach to repurchase of shares. We, we repurchase shares. We formulate, form, we used to have a, a, a policy of tying it to book value, that, but that became, uh, really became obsolete. It, it did not, the real thing is to buy stock, repurchase shares, only when you think you're doing it uh, in a, at a price where the uh, remaining shareholders have had are, are worth more of the moment after you repurchased it than they were the moment before. It's very much like if you were running a partnership and you had three partners in it and the business was worth three million and uh, one of the partners came and said, I'd like you to buy back my share of the partnership for a billion, um, 
I started out with millions, I'll stay with millions, for 1.1 million, and we said, forget it. And if he said 1 million, we'd probably uh, uh, say, forget it, unless, and uh, if he said, said 900,000, we'd take it, because at that point, uh, the remaining business would be worth 2 million one, and we'd have two owners, and our interest in value would have gone from a million to a million and 50,000. So it's, it's very simple arithmetic. Most companies, adopt repurchase programs, and they just say, we're going to spend so much. Uh, that's like saying, we're going, to, you know, we're going to buy XYZ stock, and we're going to spend so much, or we're going to buy a company, and we're going to, we're going to spend whatever it takes. Uh, we will buy stock when we think it is selling below a conservative estimate of its intrinsic value. Now, the intrinsic value is not a specific point. It's probably a range, in my mind, uh, that might have a band maybe of 10%. Uh, uh, Charlie would have a band in his mind, and it would probably be 10%. And ours would not be identical, but they'd be very close. And sometimes he might <coughs> figure a, a bit higher than I do, a bit lower. But we want to be sure when we repurchase shares that those people who have not sold shares are better off than they were before we repurchased them. And uh, it's, a, it's very simple. So that's part one of an answer Warren gave on buybacks. We've snipped out uh, the next little bit from another question on buybacks just to, for the sake of completeness. Um, so here's Warren further explaining his thoughts on uh, stock buybacks and how that uh, sort of returns money to shareholders. We would like, we'd, we'd, we really want the stock Ideally, if we could do it, if we were a small, once a year we'd have a price and you know, we'd do it like a private company and, and it would be a fair price and people who wanted to get out could get out. And if, if other people wanted to buy their interest, fine. And if they didn't and we thought the price was fair, we'd have the company repurchase it. We can't do that. But that's, uh, uh, we don't want the stock to be either significantly underpriced or significantly overpriced, and we're probably unique on the overpriced part of it, but we, we don't want it. We, I do not want the stock selling at twice as what it's worth, because I'm going to disappoint people. You know, I mean, uh, we can't make it. There's no magic formula to, uh, to make a stock worth what it's selling for if it sells for way too much. Uh, we, we don't, from a commercial standpoint, if it's selling very cheap, we have to like it and we repurchase it. But uh, ideally, we would hope the stock would sell on a range that, uh, that uh, more or less is its intrinsic value, uh, business value. We know, have no desire to hype it in any way, and we have no desire to depress it so we can repurchase it cheap. But the, nat the nature of markets is that things get overpriced and they get underpriced, and we will... It, it's underpriced, we'll take advantage of it. Nice. So moving on from buybacks, we um, now have a, a dad asking a question on behalf of his kid, and he has asked the guys, what is their most interesting or fun investment? Brooke is a proud Berkshire shareholder and read the letter and had some questions regarding investments that have been made in the past. And she had made some interesting comments about what she thought was a lot of fun. 
So our question for both of you is, outside of Berkshire Hathaway, what is the most interesting or fun personal investment you have ever made? Well, they're always, they're always more fun when you make a lot of money off of them. <laughs> well, I bought shit. One time I bought uh, one share of stock in the Atled Corp. That's spelled A-T-L-E-D. And Atled had 98 shares outstanding, and I bought one. And uh, not what you call a liquid security. Uh, and Atled happened to be the word Delta spelled backwards. And 100 guys in St. Louis had each chipped in 50 or $100 or something to form a duck club in Louisiana. And they bought some land down there. The two guys didn't come up with their, there were 100 of them. Two of them defaulted on their obligation to come up with $100. So there were 98 shares out. And they went down to, to uh, Louisiana and uh, uh, they shot some ducks, but apparently somebody shot, fired a few shots into the ground and oil spurted out and and, uh, <laughs> and those Delta Duck Club shares and there's I think the Delta Duck Club field is still producing by what's stock in it 40 years ago uh, for $29,200 a share and uh, it was it had that amount in cash and it was producing a lot and they they sold it if, if they kept it that stock might have been worth two or three million dollars a share, but they sold out to another oil company. But I, that was certainly, uh, that was the most interesting thing. Actually, I didn't have any cash at the time. And uh, I went down and borrowed the money, and uh, uh, I, I bought it for my wife, and I borrowed the money, and, and uh, the loan officer said, would you like to borrow some money to buy a shotgun as well? Charlie. <laughs> Tell them about the one you missed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have two investments that come to mind. When I was young and poor, I spent $1,000 once buying an oil royalty that paid me 100000 a year for a great many years. But I only did that once in a lifetime. On a later occasion, I bought a few shares of Elridge Oil, which went up 30 times rather quickly. and. But I turned down five times as much as I bought. It was the dumbest decision of my whole life. So if any of you have made any dumb decisions, look up here and feel good about yourselves. <laughs> so one of Berkshire's biggest investments recently has been Kraft Heinz, the massive packaged food conglomerate. In this answer, Warren and Charlie talk about Kraft Heinz, but they also talk about the retail landscape more generally and how supermarkets are competing with companies like Kraft Heinz. So obviously both of us, Bryce and I, work in retail and I guess this was a uh, per- one of personal interest for us as well as investing interest. So hopefully you guys learn something as well. This question comes from Vincent James of Munich, Germany. There has been a lot written about the recent impairment charge at Kraft Heinz. You were quoted as stating that you recognize that Berkshire overpaid for Kraft Heinz. Clearly, major retail chains are being more aggressive in developing house brands. 
In addition, Amazon has announced intentions to launch grocery outlets, meaning that, as Mr. Bezos has often stated, your margin is my opportunity. The more fundamental question related to Kraft Heinz may be whether the advantages of the large brands and the zero-based budgeting that 3G has applied are appropriate and defensible at all in consumer foods. In other words, will traditional consumer good brands in general, and Kraft Heinz in particular, have any moat in their future? My question is, to what extent do the changing dynamics in the consumer food market change your view on the long-term potential for Kraft Heinz? Yeah, yeah I, actually what I said was we paid too much for Heinz. Uh, I mean, Kraft, I'm sorry. The, uh, the Heinz part of the transaction, when we originally owned about half of half of uh, uh, Heinz, uh, we paid an appropriate price there, and uh, and we actually did well. We had some preferred redeemed and so on. Uh, we paid too much money uh, for Kraft. To some extent, our own actions had driven up the prices. Now, Kraft Heinz, uh, uh, the profits of that business Six billion, we'll say very, very, very um, roughly. I'm not projecting them out. Uh, I'm not making forecasts, but six billion uh, um, pre-tax uh, on seven billion of tangible assets is a wonderful business. Uh, but you can pay too much for a wonderful business. We bought C's candy, and we made a great purchase, as it turned out, and we could have paid more. But there's some price at which we could have bought even C's candy, and it wouldn't have worked. So the business does not know how much you paid for it. I mean, it's going to, it's going to earn based on its fundamentals, and we paid, we paid too much for the craft side of Kraft Heinz. Additionally, the, the profitability has basically been improved in those operations over the way they were operating before. But you're quite correct that Amazon itself has become a brand. Uh, uh, Kirkland at Costco is a $39 billion brand. Now, all of Kraft Heinz does $26 billion, and it's been around for, on the Heinz side, it's been around for uh, 150 years. Uh, it's been advertised billions and billions of billions of dollars in terms of their products, and they go through tens of thousands of outlets and here's somebody like Costco establishes a brand called Kirkland, and it's doing $39 billion, more than virtually any food company. And there, that brand moves from product to product, which is terrific if a brand travels. I mean, Coca-Cola moves it from Coke to Cherry Coke and Coke Zero and so on. But to have a brand that can really move, and Kirkland does more business than Coca-Cola does. Uh, uh, and Kirkland Act that operates through 775 or so uh, stores, they call them warehouses, at Costco, and Coca-Cola's through millions of distribution outlets. So brands, the retailer and the brands have always struggled as to who gets the upper hand in moving a product to the consumers. And there's no question in my mind that the position of the retailer relative to the brands, which varies enormously around the world in different, in different, uh, uh, in different countries, 
you've had 35%, even maybe 40% be private label brands and soft drinks, and it's never gotten anywhere close to that in the United States. So it, it varies a lot. But basically retailers, certain retailers, the retail system has gained some power, and particularly in the case of Amazon and Walmart and their reaction to it, and Costco. Uh, and Aldi and some others I can name, uh, has gained in power relative to brands. Kraft Heinz is still doing very well operationally, but we paid too much. If we paid $50 billion, you know, it would have been a different business. It'd still be earning the same amount. You can, you can turn any, any investment into a bad deal by paying too much. What you can't do is turn any investment into a good deal by paying little, which is sort of how I started out in this world. But the idea of buying the cigar butts that have only got, uh, that are declining or four businesses for a bargain price is not something that, that we try to do anymore. We try to buy good businesses at a decent price, and we made a mistake uh, on the craft part of Craft Tines. Charlie? Well, we, uh, it's not a tragedy that out of two transactions, one worked wonderfully and the other didn't work so well. That happens. The reduction in costs, you know, there, there can always be mistakes made when you've got places and you're rearranging, reorganizing them to do more business with them, with the same number of people. And we like buying businesses that are efficient to start with, but it's, the, the management, uh, the operations, of Kraft Heinz have been improved under the the present management overall, but uh, we paid a very high price in terms of of the Kraft part. We didn't. We paid an appropriate price in terms of Heinz. So, Ren, moving from retail to banks, it was uh, the Wells Fargo Golf International Championship over the weekend. Uh, and that's not what this question is about, but I just thought I'd point it out because Buffett is also <laughs> the biggest shareholder of Wells Fargo, a large American bank. Uh, and this question uh, is challenging him on why they didn't take a tougher stance against the company when uh, Wells Fargo were busted uh, in a big fraud case. Uh, this is a question that comes from Mike Hebel. He says, the Star Performers Investment Club has 30 partners, all of whom are active or retired San Francisco police officers. Several of our members have worked in the fraud detail and have often commented after the years-long fraudulent behavior of Wells Fargo employees should have warranted jail sentences for several dozen. Yet Wells just pays civil penalties and changes management. As proud shareholders of Berkshire, we cannot understand Mr. Buffett's relative silence compared to his vigorous public pronouncement many years ago on Solomon's misbehavior. Why so quiet? Yeah, I would... I would say this, the, probably, well, as I see it, although, you know, I, I have been no, I've read no reports internally or anything like that, but, but it looks to me like Wells uh, made some big mistakes and what they incentivize, and as Charlie says, there's nothing like incentives, but they can incentivize the wrong behavior. And I've seen that a lot of places. And the, the, that clearly existed 
at wells, uh, the interesting thing is to the extent that they set up fake accounts, a couple million of them that had no balance in them, that could not possibly have been profitable to, to wells. Uh, so you're going to incentivize some crazy things. The, the problem is, I'm sure, is that, uh, and I don't really have any insider information on it but, at all, but, but when you find a problem, you have to do something about it. And, and uh, uh, I think that's where they probably made a mistake at Wells Fargo. They made it at Solomon. I mean, uh, John, John Goodfriend would never have of uh, played around with the government. He was the CEO of Solomon in 1991. He never would have done what the bond trader did that, 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 that played around with the rules that the federal government had about government bond betting. But when he heard about it, he didn't immediately notify the Federal Reserve. And he heard about it in late April. And May 15th, the government bond auction came along and Paul Mosier did the same thing he'd done before and game the auction. And at this point, John Goodfriend, you know, the destiny of Solomon was straight downhill from that stand, from that point forward because essentially he heard about a about a pyromaniac and he let him keep the box of matches. And and uh, uh, at Wells, my understanding, there was an article in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, maybe a couple of years before the whole thing uh, was exposed and uh, you know somebody ignored that article and uh, Charlie has beaten me over the head all the years at Berkshire because we have 390,000 employees and I will guarantee you that, that some of them are doing things that are wrong right now. There's no way to have a city of 390,000 people and not need a, uh, not need a policeman or a court system and, and uh, some people don't follow the rules, and, uh, and you can incentivize the wrong behavior. You've got to do something about it when it happens. Uh, Wells has become, uh, you know, exhibit one uh, in recent years, but if you go back a few years, you know, you, you can almost go down. There's quite a list of banks where people behave badly, and, and where they I would not say, I don't know the specifics at Wells, but I've actually written in the annual report that uh, uh, they talk about moral hazard if they pay a lot of people. The shareholders of, of Wells have paid a price. The shareholders of Citicorp paid a price. The shareholders of Goldman Sachs, the shareholders of Bank of America, they paid billions and billions of dollars, and they didn't commit the acts. And of course, nobody did go there were no jail sentences, and, and that is infuriating. But the, the lesson is, that was taught was not that the government bailed you out, because the government, the government uh, got its money back, but the shareholders of the various banks paid many, many billions of dollars. And uh, uh, I don't have any advice for anybody running a business, except when you find out something is leading to bad results or bad behavior, you know, you've, if you're in the top job, you've got to take action fast. And uh, that's why we have hotlines. That's why we get, when we get a not certain anonymous letters, we, we turn them over uh, to the audit committee or to outside uh, investigators. And, uh, and we will have, I will guarantee you that we will have some people do things that are wrong at, at Berkshire 
in the next year, five years, 10 years, and 50 years. It's, it, uh, you cannot have 390,000 people. And it, it's the one thing that always worries me about my job, but, uh, because uh, I've got to hear about those things and I've got to do something about them uh, when I do hear about them. Charlie? Well, <clears throat> I don't think people ought to go to jail for honest errors of judgment. It's bad enough to lose your job. And I don't think that any of those top officers was deliberately malevolent in any way. I just, we're talking about honest errors in judgment. And I don't think Tim Sloan even committed honest errors of misjudgment. I just think he was an accidental casualty that didn't deserve the trouble. Yeah, I wish this Tim, Tim Sloan was still there. Yeah, there's no evidence that he, he did a thing, but he, he stepped up to take a job that, that where he was going to be a pinata, basically, uh, uh, for all kinds of uh, investigations. And, and rightfully, Wells should be checked out on everything they do. All banks should. I mean, uh, they, get, they get a government guarantee, and they, and they receive trillions of dollars in deposits. Uh, and uh, uh, they do that because of the, basically because of the FDIC. And, and uh, uh, if they abuse that, they should pay a price. And if anybody does anything uh, like, a, uh, like a Paul Mosier did, for example, of Solomon, they ought to go to jail. Paul Mosier only went to jail for four months. But, but uh, 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 if, you're, if, you're, if you're breaking laws, uh, you should be prosecuted on it. If you do a lot of dumb things, uh, I wish they wouldn't go away, the CEOs wouldn't go away so rich under those circumstances, but, but people will do dumb things. <laughs> I actually proposed, I think I, it may have been in one of the annual reports even, I, I proposed that if a, if a bank gets to where it needs government assistance, that uh, uh, basically the, the responsible CEO should lose his net worth and his spouse's net worth if he doesn't want the job under those circumstances. You know, uh, and I think that the directors, uh, I think they should come after the directors for the last five years, I think I proposed, of, their, of, all, uh, of everything they've received. Uh, but it's the shareholders who pay. I mean, that, uh, if we own 9% of Wells, whatever this has cost, 9% of it is being borne by by us, and uh, 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 it's very hard to tie it directly. One, one thing you should know, incidentally, though, is that the FDIC, which was started, I think it was started January 1st, 1934, but it, it was a New Deal proposal, and the FDIC uh, has not cost the United States government a penny. It now has about $100 billion in it, and that money has all been put in there by the banks, and that's covered all the losses of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of financial institutions. And uh, I think the impression is that, that the government, the government guarantees save the banks, but the government money did not save the banks. The bank's money as an industry not only has paid every loss, but they've accumulated an extra $100 billion, and that's the reason the FDIC assessments now are going back down. They had them at a, at a high level, and they had a higher level for the very big banks. So it, it, uh, uh, 
when you when you hear all the talk about the political talk about the banks, they have not cost the federal government. They have they did a, there were a lot of actions that took place that should not have taken place, uh, and there's a lot fewer now I think than there were in the period leading up to 2008 and nine. But. Uh, uh, some banks will make big mistakes in the future, Charlie. I got, I've got nothing to add to that. Oh, okay. So interesting answer from Warren there. Starts by defending the bank and defending the bank CEO and then ends by saying that bank CEOs should be personally liable for the losses that their banks incur. So uh, a little bit of a varied answer there, but you know, hopefully... It got everyone thinking about the issue. Anyway, moving on. Uh, the next question is about 5G, the technology. But why we've included this is because towards the end of it, Warren and Charlie talk about change generally in the economy and in the world and what that's meant for their investing career because you know Warren started investing in the 50s. You think about the technological change, the industries that have risen and died in that time. So I thought this was a really interesting perspective on long-term investing and how you manage the rise and falls of industries. Hello, Charlie Mungo and uh, Warren Buffett, my idols. Um, I'm Terry from Shanghai Judge P Fund, which aims to catch the best investment opportunity in that era. So my question is, as we all know, 5G is coming. It is said that the mode of all industry will be challenged in 5G era. So what is the core competence that we should master if Bookshare Hathaway wants to catch the best investment opportunities in next era? Thank you. Well, there's no core competence at the very top of Berkshire. <laughs> The, uh, <laughs> but we, the subsidiaries that will be involved in developments relating to 5G or any one of all kinds of things that are going to happen in this world, uh, you know, the utility of LNG at, at, uh, in the railroad or all those kinds of questions. We have people in those businesses that... Uh, know a lot more about them than we do and 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 you know it, it, we we count on our managers to anticipate what is coming in their business and then sometimes they talk to us about it uh, uh, but uh, we do not run that from a central on a centralized basis and uh, um, Charlie do you want to have anything to add to that You know anything about 5G? I don't know. Well, you probably know a lot about 5G. No, I know very little about 5G. But I do know a little about China. And uh, we have bought things in China, and I, my guess is we'll buy more. Yeah. But, I mean, we basically want to have a group of managers, and we do have a group of managers, who are on top of their businesses. I mean, you saw something that showed BNSF and, 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 and Berkshire Hathaway Energy and Lubrizol all there. That, uh, those people know their businesses. 
they know what's they know what changes are likely to be ahead. Uh, sometimes they find things that they can cooperate on between their businesses, but we don't try to run those from headquarters. And and uh, that may mean that may have certain weaknesses at certain times. I think Net is it's been a terrific uh, benefit for Berkshire. But, uh, uh, our managers. To a great degree, own their businesses, and 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 they, we want them to feel a sense of ownership. We don't want them to be lost in some massive conglomerate and nobody that where they get directions from this group, which is a subgroup of that group. And I could tell you a few horror stories from from uh, uh, companies we bought when they tell us about their experience under such an operation. So we. Uh, the world is going to change in dramatic ways. Just think how much it's changed in the 54 years that we've we've had Berkshire. And some of those changes hurt us. They hurt us in textiles. They hurt us in shoes. They hurt us in the department store business. Uh, hurt us in the trading stamp business. And those, these were the founding businesses of, of, of this operation. But we do adjust, and, and uh, uh, we... We've got a group overall of very good businesses. We've got some that will be, will be uh, uh, actually destroyed by what happens in this world. But that's, you know, I still am the card-carrying capitalist, and I believe that, that that's a good thing. But, uh, uh, you have to make changes. We had 80% of the people working on farms in, uh, in 1800. And if there hadn't been a lot of ch changes, and you needed 80% of the people in the country producing the food and cotton we needed, we would have a whole different society. So we welcome change, and, and we certainly want to have managers that can anticipate and adapt to it. But sometimes we'll be wrong, and, and those businesses will wither and die, and we better use the money someplace else. So, Ren, there was a while there where Buffett and uh, Charles were always talking about investing in things they know and, and tech wasn't high on their priority list. This question was aimed at their recent investment in Amazon, um, but it's interesting to note that throughout the answer, Charlie discusses how they missed out on investing in Google and uh, it's probably one of their biggest investing regrets to date. Uh, this question is from Ken Scarbeck in Indianapolis. He says, with the full understanding that Warren had no input on the Amazon purchase and that relative to Berkshire, it's likely a small stake, the investment still caught me off guard. I'm wondering if I should begin to think differently about Berkshire looking out, say, 20 years. Might we be seeing a shift in investment philosophy away from value investing principles that the current management has practiced for 70 years? Amazon is a great company, yet it would seem its heady shares 10 years into a bull market appear to conflict with being fearful when others are greedy. Considering this and other recent investments like Stoneco, should we be preparing for a change in the price versus value decisions that built Berkshire? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you, the term value investing came up because I can assure you that both managers who and one of them bought uh, some Amazon stock in the last quarter, which will get reported in another week or 10 days. Uh, he is a value investor. Uh, the idea that value is somehow connected to book value or low price earnings ratios or anything, uh, 
as Charlie has said, all investing is value investing. I mean, you're, you're, you're putting out some money now to get more later on, and you're making a calculation as to the probabilities of getting that money and when you'll get it and what interest rates will be in between, and all the same calculation goes into it whether you're buying some bank at 70% of book value or you're buying Amazon at some very high multiple of reported earnings. Amazon, the people making the decision on Amazon are absolutely much value investors as I was when I was looking around for all these things selling below working capital uh, years ago. So that has not changed. The, the two people that, one of whom made the investment in Amazon, they are looking at many hundreds of securities and they can look at more than I can because they're managing less money and their, their universe possible universes is, is, is uh, greater, but they are looking for things that they feel they understand what will be developed by that business between now and Judgment Day and cash, and, and it's, it's not it. Sales, current sales can make some difference, current profit margins can make some difference, tangible assets, excess cash, excess debt, all of those things go into making a calculation as to whether they should buy A versus B versus C. And they are, they are absolutely following value principles. They don't necessarily agree with each other or agree with me, but they are very smart. They are totally committed to Berkshire, and they're, they're, they're very good human beings on top of it. So uh, I don't I don't uh, second-guess them on anything. Charlie doesn't second-guess me on, in 60 years, he's never second-guessed me on an investment. And uh, uh, the considerations are identical when you buy Amazon uh, versus, versus uh, some, say, bank stock that uh, looks cheap statistically against book value or earnings or something of the sort. Uh, in the end, it all goes back uh, to Aesop, who in 600 BC said, you know, that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And when we buy Amazon, we try and figure out whether, or the fellow that bought it tries to figure out whether there's three or four or five in the bush and how long it'll take to get to the bush, how certain he is that he's going to get to the bush. You know, and then who else is going to come and try and take the bush away and all of that sort of thing. And we do the same thing, and, and uh, it really, it really uh, despite, despite a lot of uh, equations you'll learn in, in, in business school, the basic equation is that of, of uh, ESOP, and, the, and your success in investing depends on how well you were able to figure out how certain that bush is, how far away it is, and what the worst case is, instead of two, two birds being there, only one being there, and, uh, and the possibilities of four or five or 10 or 20 being there. And uh, that, that will guide me, that will guide my successors in investment management at Berkshire, and I think they'll be right more often than they're wrong. Shortly. Well, I... I Warren and I are a little older than some people, and damn near everybody. <laughs> and we're not the most flexible, probably, in the whole world. And of course, if something as extreme as this internet development happens, uh, 
and you don't catch it, why other people are going to blow by you. And I don't mind not having caught Amazon early. The guy is kind of a miracle worker. It's very peculiar. I, I give myself a pass on that. But I feel like a horse's ass for not identifying Google better. I think Warren feels the same way. Yeah. We, we screwed up. He's saying we blew it. <laughs> yeah. And we did have some insights into that because we were using them at Geico and we were seeing the results produced and we saw that we were paying $10 a click or whatever it might have been for something that had a marginal cost to them of exactly zero. And, and uh, we saw it was working for us. So we, we can was, see in our own operations yeah. how well that Google advertising was working. And we just sat there sucking our thumbs. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we're ashamed. We, we atone. We're trying to atone. Maybe Apple was atonement. When he says sucking our thumbs, I'm just glad he didn't use some other example. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. A little bit of a cheeky joke there from Warren to uh, finish it off. Uh, aside, the joke aside, um, I really like the answer from Charlie, and I think it it goes to something that we've talked about before. And Peter Lynch talks about in his book One Up on Wall Street how sometimes the best investments are things that you're using and things that you see around you. And Charlie and Warren were using Google at Geico. They recognized its value. They recognized the economic proposition for Google. You know, there was next to no marginal cost for each incremental customer, but there was a lot of value created for each incremental customer. And yet they didn't invest. Yeah, fascinating. Even the the best investors of all time can miss it sometimes. So it always pays to keep a sharp eye on what you're using and what's creating value for you. Mm. Anyway, speaking of creating value, private equity has sucked up a lot of money recently. And for those who aren't familiar with what it is, just think of it as private pools of capital just masses amount of capital billions and billions of dollars that just try and find ways to earn yield just earn returns for their investors warren and charlie were asked a question on uh, private equity funds and what they thought about them as investment vehicles especially for big funds like superannuation funds and pension funds warren and charlie my name is Brent Muyo. I'm from Winnipeg, Canada. First, thank you for devoting so much time and energy to education. I'm a better investor because of your efforts. But more importantly, I'm a better partner, friend, son, brother, and soon-to-be first-time father. There's nothing more important than these relationships, and my life is better because you're willing to pass on your experience and wisdom. My path into finance was unconventional. I worked as an engineer for 12 years, while two years ago I began a career in finance working for the Civil Service Superannuation Board, a $7 billion public pension fund in Winnipeg. I work on alternative investments, which include infrastructure, private equity, and private credit. I go to work every day knowing that I'm there to benefit the hardworking, current, and future beneficiaries of the fund. Like most asset classes, alternative purchase multiples have increased. More of these assets are funded with borrowed money, and the terms and covenants on this debt are essentially non-existent. With this in mind, 
and knowing the constraints of illiquid, closed-end funds, please give me your thoughts on private alternative investments, their relevancy in public pension funds, and your view on long-term return expectations. Yeah, if you had leveraged up investments uh, in just common stocks, uh, and you'd figured a way so that that uh, you would have staying power if there were any market dip. I mean, you'd obviously have re obtained extraordinary returns. I pointed out in my investing lifetime, you know, an index fund would do 11%. Well, imagine how you'd have done if you'd leveraged that up 50%, whatever the prevailing rates were over time. So a leveraged investment in a business is going to be an unleveraged investment in a good business a good bit of the time. But as you point out, the covenants to protect debt holders has, have really de deteriorated in the business. And of course, you've been in a, an up market for businesses and you've got a period of low interest rates. So it's been a very good time for it. I, my personal opinion is if you take if you take unleveraged returns against unleveraged common stocks, uh, I do not think what is being purchased today and marketed today would work well. But if, if you can borrow money, if you can buy assets that will yield 7 or 8% and you can borrow enough money at 4 or 5% and you don't have any covenants to meet, you're going to have some bankruptcies, but you're going to also uh, have better results in many cases. It's not a... It's not something that interests us at all. We, we are not going to leverage up Berkshire. If we'd leveraged up Berkshire, we'd have made a whole lot more money, obviously, over the years. But uh, both Charlie and I probably have seen some more high IQ people, really extraordinarily IQ people, destroyed by leverage. We saw long-term capital management where we had people who could do in their sleep math that we couldn't do. At least I couldn't do, you know, working full time at it during the day. And I mean, really, really smart people working with their own money and with years and years of experience of what they were doing. And, and uh, you know, it all turned to pumpkins and mice in 1998. And, and he actually was a source of national concern, uh, just a few hundred people. And then we saw some of those same people after that happened to them once go out and do the same thing again. So it's, uh, uh, I would I would not get excited about so-called alternative investments. There's, you can get all kinds of different figures, but there may be, there's probably at least a trillion dollars committed uh, to buying, in effect, buying businesses. And if you figure they're gonna leverage them you know, two for one on that, you may have three trillion of buying power trying to buy businesses in a, well, the U.S. market may be something over 30 trillion now, but there's all kinds of businesses that aren't for sale in that thing. So the supply-demand situation for buying businesses privately and leveraging them up has changed dramatically from what it was 10 or 20 years ago. And I'm sure it doesn't happen with your Winnipeg operation, but, but we have seen a number of proposals 
uh, from private equity funds where the returns are really not calculated in a, in a manner that, uh, well, I, they're not calculated in a manner that I would regard as honest. And uh, 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 so I, it, it's, 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 it's not something, uh, if I were running a pension fund, I would be very careful about what was being uh, offered to me. If you have a choice in Wall Street between being a great analyst or being a great salesperson, uh, the salesperson is the way to make it. If you can, if you can raise $10 billion in a fund and you get a 1.5% fee and you lock people up for 10 years, you know, you and your children and your grandchildren will never have to do a thing if you are the dumbest investor in the world. <laughs> Charlie? Well, I, I think what we're doing will work more safely than what he's doing. And, but I, I wish him well. Yeah, Brent, you sound, you sound, actually you sound like a guy that I would hope would be working for a public pension fund because frankly, most of the, most of the institutional funds, you know, well, we had this terrible, uh, right here in Omaha, and uh, you, can, you can get a story of what happened with our, with our Omaha Public Schools Retirement Fund, and they were doing fine, and until uh, um, the manager started uh, going in a different direction, and the, and the trustees here, perfectly decent people, and the manager had done okay to that point, and it yeah, became... They were smarter in Winnipeg than they are here. Yeah, well, that was pretty bad here. It's not a fair fight, actually, when a, usually when a bunch of public officials are listening to people who are motivated to uh, who really just get paid for raising the money. Uh, everything else is gravy after that, but, but uh, uh, you know, you, if you run a fund and you get even 1%, you know, of, 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 of a billion, you're getting $10 million a year coming in, and if you've got the money locked up for a long time, uh, it's, it, it's a very one-sided deal, and, you know, I, I told the story of asking the guy one time in the past, how in the world can you, uh, why in the world can you ask for two and 20 when you really haven't got any kind of uh, evidence that you uh, are going to do better with the money than you do in an index fund. And he said, well, that's because I can't get three and 30. <laughs> what I don't like about a lot of the pension fund investment is I think they like it because they don't have to mark it down as much as it should be in the middle of the panics. I think that's a silly reason to buy something because you're given leniency in marking it down. Yeah, and when you commit the money, in the case of private equity often, uh, you, uh, they don't take the money, but you pay a fee on the money that you've committed. And of course, you really have to have that money to come up with at any time. And of course, it makes their return look better if you sit there for a long time and treasury bills, which you have to hold because they can call you up and demand the money, and they don't count that. They count it in terms of getting a fee on it, but they don't count it in terms of what the so-called internal rate of return 
it's, 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 uh, it's not as good as it looks. And, and I really do think that when you have a group sitting as a state pension fund. Or all they're doing is lying a little bit to make the money come in. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, that, that sums it up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so second last one is on delayed gratification, how you basically can learn to be a long-term investor. Hey, Warren and Charlie. I'm Neil Narona. I'm 13 years old and from San Francisco. I feel like I see you in our living room a lot. <laughs> My dad is constantly playing these videos of you at these meetings. And he teaches me a lot of lessons about you guys. But many of them require the delayed gratification skill. (laughs) I wanna know, is there any way that kids can develop the delayed gratification skill. I'll take it if you want me to. I'll take that because I'm a specialist in delayed gratification. I've had a lot of time to delay it. And and, My answer is that they sort of come out of the womb with the delayed gratification thing, or they come out of the womb where they have to have everything right now. And I've never been able to change them at all. So we identify it, we don't turn it in. Charlie's had eight children, so he's become more and more of a believer in in nature versus nurture. (laughs) Uh, You'll probably sign some nice old woman of about 95 out there in threadbare clothing, and she's delaying gratification right to the end and probably has 4,000 A shares. <laughs> it's just these second and third generation types that are buying all the jewelry. It's interesting, if you think about, we'll, we'll take it to a broader point, but if you think of the long, a 30-year government bond paying 3%, and you allow for, as an individual, paying some taxes on the 3% you'll receive, and you'll have the Federal Reserve Board saying that their objective is to have 2% inflation, you'll really see that uh, that delayed gratification, if you own a long government bond, is that, you know, you get to, you get to go to Disneyland and ride the same number of rides 30 years from now that you would if you did it now. The, the, the low interest rates for people who invest in fixed dollar investments uh, really mean that uh, you really aren't going to, you know, get, have eat steak later on if you eat hamburgers now, which is what I used to preach to my wife and children and anybody else that would listen many years ago. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so it's, I don't necessarily think that, that, uh, for all families in all circumstances, that saving money is is uh, necessarily the best thing to do in life. I mean, you know, it, uh, the, if you really if you really tell your kids they can 
whatever it may be. They never go to the movies or will never go to Disneyland or something of the sort. Because if I save this money 30 years from now, you know, we'll, we'll be able to stay a week instead of two days. I think, I think there's a lot to be said uh, for doing things that, that bring you and your family enjoyment rather than trying to save every dime. And, uh, uh, so uh, I advise the delayed gratification is not uh, necessarily a, an unqualified uh, uh, course of action under all circumstances. Uh, I always believed in spending two or three cents out of every dollar I earned, <laughs> saving the rest. <laughs> But I really, I've always had everything I wanted. I mean, one thing you should understand, uh, if you aren't happy having $50,000 or $100,000, you're not going to be happy if you have $50 million or $100 million. I mean, it, it, uh, a certain amount of money does make you feel, and those feel around you feel, better just in terms of being more secure in some cases, but, but uh, loads and loads of money. I, I've probably known as many rich people as just about anybody, and uh, uh, I do not, uh, I don't think they're happier because they get super rich. I think they're, I think they are, they are happier when they don't have to worry about money, but uh, you don't see a correlation between happiness and money. Uh, beyond a certain place. So don't go overboard on delayed gratification. Nice one. This has been good, Ren. So we're now just about to come to the halfway mark of the seven-hour marathon of uh, question and answer with Charles and and, uh, and Warren. And so we thought we'd finish with a question that was to do with uh, Bitcoin. And this we'll, we'll join uh, the, the conversation halfway through an answer here because uh, Charlie is just about to go on a, a tangent on his thoughts on Bitcoin and really fascinated by this answer. So this is our last question and uh, we'll let you listen to the remaining three and a half hours, Ren, and, and hopefully come back with the next uh, next lot. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. <laughs> and I also want to report that your vice chairman is getting new social distinction. I've been invited during this gathering to go to a happy hour put on by the Bitcoin people. <laughs> and I tried to figure out what the Bitcoin people do in their happy hour, and I finally figured it out. They celebrate the life and work of Judas Iscariot. <laughs> Is your invitation still good? <laughs> well, Bitcoin actually on my honeymoon in 1952, my bride, 19, and I, 21, uh, stopped in Las Vegas. We just got in my aunt. Alice gave me the car and said, have a good time, and we went west. So we stopped in the Flamingo, and I looked around, and I saw all of these well-dressed, they dressed better in those days, well-dressed people who had come, in some cases, thousands of miles away and this was before jets, so transportation wasn't as good. And they came to do something that every damn one of them knew was mathematically dumb. And I told Susie, I said, 
we are going to make a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, imagine people going to stick money on some roulette number with a zero and a double zero there and knowing the percent. They all could do it, and they, they just do it. And I have to say, Bitcoin has, re, has rejuvenated that feeling in me. <laughs> So there you go, uh, not good news for anyone still holding cryptocurrency out there, unless you want to bet against Warren Buffett, but he's certainly betting against you. So take that, <laughs> take that how you will. Um, so that is the end of our part one of uh, the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, or at least the Q&A part of it. Hopefully you guys have got something out of it. These are the two greatest investors, I would say, of all time. You know, we get a chance to listen to them, share some thoughts. So hopefully you enjoy listening to them as much as we do. And if you do, next Monday, listen to the second half of it. (laughs) And if you do, how's this for a pledge, Ren, that next year's uh, Equity Mates celebration party will be in Omaha, United States. Is that where he holds it? Or he holds it in Vegas? No, no, no. It's in it's in Omaha. Yeah, it's in Omaha. Yeah. Uh, so if we get enough people uh, joining the show, helping us go full time, quitting our jobs, and uh, getting us on the on the road to the share market, guys, worldwide, equity mates worldwide, then we'll do this live next year in in Omaha. I like it. I like it. We threw a bunch <laughs> of the money we've made from advertising uh, behind the bar for our party this year. Yeah. Uh, next year we'll give back to our listeners by maybe not flying all of them over, but we'll fly at least some of them over. Yep. As long as people keep listening, I guess. Absolutely, and getting everyone on board. Well, so, I guess if people stop listening, there'll be less flights we need to buy. So. True. Could we just you and <laughs> you and I without the mics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I think uh, I look forward to seeing you there. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation.